Welcome to the Final Girl Friday Archives. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. The Archives is a collection of episodes from the early days of Final Girl Friday, when it was still finding itself. I was still trying to figure out what the hell it even was. We've grown a lot since 2019, but I didn't want to delete the old episodes because they're a part of the show's history, and a lot of them contain a lot of information about the movies that we love, so I've just retooled them a little bit. If you're new here and you feel like starting from the beginning, you've come to the right place. Happy belated 4th of July to anyone who may be listening to this. I originally intended to talk about Jaws this week because it was 4th of July week and that's my 4th of July movie. But then last week, Alan was watching a video of upcoming releases for 2020 and I heard out of the corner of my ear. Is that a phrase that people use? The corner of my ear? (laughs) I was doing something else. I wasn't watching the video, but I heard something about a remake of Candyman. And I felt this very unpleasant but familiar bubbling up of white hot rage within me, because this is my knee-jerk reaction whenever I hear any announcement about a remake or a reboot to a movie that I already really like. Um, I never respond positively to this news. In this particular instance, my anger was almost immediately assuaged as the video went on to announce that Jordan Peele would be involved in the project, Tony Todd is being uh, rumored to be involved somehow, and also that they aren't really calling it a remake or a reboot, they're calling it a spiritual sequel. All of this information actually kind of made me feel a little hopeful. I mean, that the key word is little there, because of course, it's still like 90% um, skepticism, but about 10% hope. There was hope there. When, when all was said and done after this like 30 seconds of my life had passed, I really started thinking again, and this is not the first time that I have gotten very introspective about this. I started thinking again about how often this happens to me and how irritated I am as a fan of film in general, but particularly as a horror fan, because so many movies that I love have already been remade and it seems like it just is never going to stop. The movies that I love are just going to keep being remade over and over again. The limit does not exist. The limit does not exist. It just doesn't end. And I mean, man, I'm 36 years old. I've been watching horror movies uh, my entire life and remakes in particular. I mean, I think I saw Cronenberg's The Fly when I was, God, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. Um, I'm sure I probably saw The Blob and I know I saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers even earlier than that. So I mean, in in a way, I've been watching remakes also my entire life. It's time that I made peace with them. (laughs) The point of this entry is more about just talking it out, and I am going to try to apply a very minimal amount of science to this. I I did kind of invent an exercise whereby I have taken a supposedly complete list of horror movie remakes to date, and from that list, I've narrowed it down um, using a very small but uh, specific set of criteria. And then from that smaller list, I've selected three horror remakes that I enjoyed and three that I didn't. And I would like to go through each one and examine them individually, trying my best to remain as objective as possible. 
I don't know how well that's going to go, but I'm going to try. Because the, the purpose of this is not necessarily to just trash remakes. They're here to stay, clearly. And if at the very end of the century, I have no other option but to conclude that they're all just terrible, and there really is no getting past this, then so be it. My, my hope is that by thinking and talking about them, trying to kind of contrast and compare what are the things I enjoyed about the remakes that I otherwise disliked and, and what are the things that maybe uh, shouldn't have happened or could have been done differently in the ones that I do kind of enjoy, getting it all out on the table. <laughs> That's the goal. I don't know if this will be interesting to anyone, but that's this is an audio blog. I will eventually talk about Jaws. It is one of my favorite films ever made. But today, remix and reboots, that's, that's what I'm doing. So Wikipedia's list of horror movie remakes includes 179 titles. 53 of those titles are what, for me, are foreign language films. I'm not going to count these mostly because I have seen very few of them, but also because it's difficult for me to really fairly assess a film that is like a cultural adaptation when I'm not very familiar with the culture um, from which it emerged. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know that I could really fairly say whether or not the Americanized versions of what, for me, are foreign films are really fair cultural adaptations either, because if I'm not familiar with the culture from which they originated, I just don't feel like I'm qualified to say anything about them. Um, so anyway, I excluded those 53 titles from the list, which left me with 126. And of those, I've seen only 29. It's like less than a fourth of them. I actually thought that that number would be a little bit higher. But I guess it's a testament to how stubbornly anti-remake I am that I just... I haven't seen very many of them. So the number I was left with was 29. Of those 29 titles, I enjoyed approximately 10 of them. So a little less than half. One of them I mentioned earlier is Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. It is one of my favorite horror films ever made, so I won't be talking about that today because I feel that I won't really be able to examine it objectively. And the same goes for my least favorite horror movie remake, which is A Nightmare on Elm Street from 2010. I hate that movie so much. I don't think that I could fairly and objectively set it out on the table and and examine it. It's, it doesn't. Neither of those films are going to be included in this exercise because I just can't be objective about them. I also, I, I just kind of tried to keep the era in which these films were released as close together as possible. I will be talking about one movie uh, pr that was released prior to the 21st century, but all the rest of them are 21st century films. Just because I feel like the older remakes have a bit of an unfair advantage over the newer ones because of nostalgia, and also because remakes were being made a little less frequently back then, or a little bit more selectively, I feel that those films were made uh, with a little bit more love and care on average, if that makes sense. So... I, I tried to keep the movies kind of squished together time-wise. The three remakes that I chose that I did enjoy are House on Haunted Hill from 1999, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003, and Fright Night from 2011. My three picks for remakes that I didn't enjoy are Halloween from 2007, My Bloody Valentine from 2009, and Poltergeist from 2015. So those are the six films that I want to consider today. Now, as far as my general feelings regarding remakes and reboots are concerned, I think more than anything, the reason why I react so negatively by default to you know these films is mostly because even the ones that I enjoy, 
I feel for the most part, they're just unnecessary. That's that's the word that comes to my mind nearly every time I think about a remake, whether I liked it or not. It just feels like, why do we need these films? If the story has already been told to us and told to us well, why do we need to see it again? And is there any real reason to remake these films that isn't just to make money? You know, I realize that to the people who create these movies, I'm, I'm sure that they are very necessary because they're they're paying their bills. But as an audience member, I can think of very few remakes or reboots um, or modernizations that are that are necessary. I think there are a couple of different arguments that one could make in defense of remakes. And probably the best example of one of those arguments, at least in my opinion, would be that we do it with everything. It's not just happening with horror films or films in general. We have bands that do cover songs. Uh, we have mixed media art that draws from a multitude of other people's photography and paintings and just art, you know, even graphic design. As a species, we are constantly recycling and regurgitating other people's ideas and making them our own. And I don't necessarily think that that's inherently a bad thing. We have uh, stage plays that are interpretations of books or movies. We have, you know, you, you if you really enjoyed Walt Disney's Aladdin, well, you can also see it on Broadway and you can see a live action version of it on film. You can read this novelization of the story, etc., etc. We're, I mean, to take one version of something and turn it into multiple versions across different mediums, we do that all the time. So why are movie remakes so different in the minds of so many moviegoers, one of which is me? Like, why is it so different? I also think that it's very important to be mindful of the cultural implications of horror films in particular because of how reflective a lot of horror films are of the time period in which they are released, of the politics that are present at that time, also just of what people are afraid of, you know, as a society at the time in which the film is released. So what is scary or culturally relevant to, let's say, an American audience in 1974 may not be the same things that are scary or culturally relevant to moviegoers in 2003. So I think it's important to consider those things when really examining a film remake and trying to, at the very least, gauge what level of unnecessary it is, or whether or not some of the changes they made to the film are actually relevant. Before I start this very scientific exercise, um, no matter how much I may personally dislike a film, somebody somewhere out there probably loves it, and somebody somewhere out there probably poured their heart and soul into it to make it happen. I'm ever mindful of how whether or not something is good or bad is entirely subjective. This is just a personal exercise for me. I'm not a professional of the industry. I'm not a, a film critic. I'm just a fan. So what the hell do I even know? Not a lot. All right, so the first film on my list, I'm going chronologically here, uh, is House on Haunted Hill, directed by William Malone from 1999. Now, this is one of the films on my list of remakes that I do really enjoy, and I really enjoy this film. It's a bit of a bittersweet relationship because I am also mindful of the fact that this film was a part of that cluster of horror remakes in the late 90s and early 2000s that really kickstarted the trend, this like seemingly never-ending trend of remaking and rebooting stories. I tend to think of this film fondly, but also with this sort of attitude of like, you, you started this. 
But it's, it's, I think it's a great film. I also think that it actually had a lot more going for it from the very beginning than quite a few remakes have. Like, first of all, you have William Malone, who I think is a great director. I was a big fan of Scared to Death, and I also really enjoy The Fair-Haired Child, which was the episode of Masters of Horror that he directed. Um, I didn't enjoy Fear.com very much, but that had nothing to do with William Malone. That was the marketing for Fear.com, because Udo Kier was kind of pushed really hard in the trailers as being a big part of the movie. Movie. And I got so excited because I thought, ooh, Steven Dorff and Udo Kier back together again for the first time since Blade. I have to see this. And then, and then Udo Kier dies like in the first like 10 minutes of the movie. I was really, I was, I was pissed. But that's not William Malone's fault, so I, I don't count that against him. Um, they also had some fantastic crew members on this film. You have um, special effects makeup being done by Greg Nicotero, who I'm really excited because I feel like he's kind of becoming a household name. A lot of people know him these days from a lot of different things. So the guy's got like over 200 credits to his name. He was a part of this, so that was that was really great. And then also you had Dick Smith, uh, which I think House on Haunted Hill was the last film that Smith worked on. The guy did special effects makeup for The Exorcist. House on Haunted Hill was very fortunate to have both him and Greg Nicotero on board. In addition to the great crew and the great director, you also had a wonderful cast. House on Haunted Hill, I know, is not a very obscure film, so I'm sure most people are familiar with the story, but in case somebody hears this and they're not, the original House on Haunted Hill, which is directed by William Castle, is just one of the campiest, most wonderful, fun horror films uh, ever to come out of you know, the 1950s. 50s. Uh, and it, it was, it's just such a great time, especially if you are a fan of William Castle. It just pulls out all the stops, in my opinion. The story uh, is about a man, a wealthy man, who throws a party in a house that is rumored to be haunted. It's also the story of the man who unwittingly assumed ownership of the house. He just wants to convince people of the truth about the house and winds up, of course, getting wrapped up in, in wrapped up in the drama. But the original story, I feel like what it's about more than anything is about this wealthy man portrayed by Vincent Price and his relationship with his wife, played by Carol Omart, and how tumultuous their relationship is. There's a lot of bitterness there. He's very rich. She is, I believe, his fourth wife. They hint in the dialogue that his previous three wives uh, died, but they, they don't really explore that a whole lot. Um, he's a very jealous man. In fact, he comes across as very villainous and almost unlikable in the film, but he's Vincent Price, so, I mean, he's he is very likable. Uh, but the character itself, I personally feel that Frederick Lauren is a bit of a bad guy. And Carol Omart, her character is also very attitudinal. She's just chock-a-block full of sass. You remember the fun we had when you poisoned me? <laughs> Something you ate, the doctor said. Yes, arsenic on the rocks. And she's great. I love her performance in the film. Um, but she's miserable in her marriage, and she refuses to grant him a divorce because she wants all of his money. He actually offers her, like, a million dollars, no strings attached, to just leave the marriage, and she refuses because she wants his entire fortune. Neither of them are very good people. And I feel that m most of the story from the 1959 House on Haunted Hill is really about that relationship and Frederick Lauren using the party and the haunted house all as an elaborate way to get rid of his wife. Like I said, it's a campy film. It's a fun and funny film, but it isn't a very scary one, obviously. I mean, it's William Castle. Most William Castle you know, films had great stories with a lot of potential for scares, but the execution, because of the budget and because of William Castle just being who he is, the, the films are a lot less scary and a lot more just fun and entertaining. 
Well, if I were going to haunt anybody, this would certainly be the house I'd do it in. The remake of House on Haunted Hill took what was that really great story from the original and really built upon it and tried to deliver something that was at once campy and funny, but also delivered some actual, what I felt at least in 99, were, were pretty decent scares. And then also the new story, they did something a little bit different. They kept the relationship between the Vincent Price character, whose name is Stephen Price in the remake, and his wife Evelyn. They kept the relationship exactly the same. And their storyline is almost exactly the same, but they just kind of pushed it far back enough so that it became a secondary story. And the haunting is the, the main story in this film. And I really like that. Also, the characters of Stephen and Evelyn Price are played by Jeffrey Rush and Famke Jensen, and I feel like they both do a really good job, particularly Jeffrey Rush. In, in my opinion, there are very few casting choices that have been better. He's paying tribute to three people at once in his performance, his wardrobe, everything about the character, um, pays tribute to, I think, William Castle himself, as well as Vincent Price and the character of Frederick Lauren, all kind of embodied in one actor. And I just thought Jeffrey Rush was a great choice. I also really liked what they did with the character of Pritchard, the owner of the property um, from the original film, was a very doomsayer, straight-laced. He is getting drunk through the whole film, which I really appreciate, but he is just uber-serious, spastic, a little annoying, and just doing everything he can to convince everyone in the house that it is haunted and that they are in danger. He's very humorless. And that character in the remake is portrayed by Chris Kattan. They kind of gave him the bulk of the comic relief. They did keep in that Pritchard is getting drunk through the entire story, which is one of my favorite things about the original and definitely one of my favorite things about the remake. That? What just happened to you there? That's nothing. You've just been playing around with the ghosts. Wait till somebody lets out the darkness in this place. That's a whole, that's a whole new bunch of crazy shit. That's, you'll hate that shit. And then you also have a couple of other actors that I thought did a really wonderful job and kind of brought a little bit more depth to the characters. You have Allie Larder, who is one of my all-time favorite final girls, and she gives a great final girl performance in this film. In the remake, her name is Sarah, but she's sort of based on the, the character of Nora from the original. And then you have Tay Diggs, who plays Eddie, which is a, a based on the character of Lance from the original. You just have a nice cast of supporting players. Those are, in my opinion, the things that the film did right. It, it took the original story, it built upon it, kind of shifted the focus a little bit, but kept a lot of that original story intact. It created a little bit more depth for its characters, and it did try to actually scare its audience. In that sense, I do actually feel that House on Haunted Hill did do something um, that I appreciate that maybe could even be called as a stretch a little necessary, which was taking this great story and, and turning it into something that for 90s audiences was and at times very scary. No, I am so fucking far from all right. It's not even funny. Someone or something just tried to drown me in a tank of blood the size of a Buick. As far as what the film does wrong, my biggest gripe with House on Haunted Hill so many horror films, especially during the more experimental years for CGI, went just way over the top with it. And for the most part, House on Haunted Hill did not do that. But the last like 15 minutes of the film, 20 minutes of the film, um, I could see what they were trying to do. 
So you have the spirits of everyone who died in the house that are fucking with everybody. But then there's the darkness, the evil at the center of the house. And when that evil is unleashed, that's when things really go bananas and everyone that is going to die that hasn't died yet dies. And there's a big sort of like chase scene running down a hallway where the floor is exploding that I really enjoy. But the evil itself, it was like this giant gray blob of CGI that almost looked a little bit like silly putty that had just been stretched and stretched and layered in on itself and then stretched some more and then given like leaving a little bit of like tenderly stuff on the ends. And from within that giant gray muck um, would come these like really bad distorted faces of the people that it had eaten or, or the people that had just died throughout the film. And it was really, really bad. Like I get what they were trying to do with it, but it just did not go well. So I feel I wish that they had done something differently there. The movie had a couple of parts that were a little gory, but for the most part, nothing felt overdone. I think of all the films on my list today. This is probably the one that I have the least to complain about. I just feel that it was a tasteful tribute to a great film that maintained a lot of the spirit of the original, telling its own version of the story. You know, Ms. Mars walking around with a giant digital camera in the earlier days of those being a thing. And and that was also one of the first times that I remember really seeing them play with the concept that when you're looking at the horrible thing through the lens of like your iPhone or a digital camera, it sort of creates a buffer and makes it a little less scary. I don't know. I just, I thought it was good. And I I wish I could be a little bit more critical of it. But this film in particular kind of sucks to start with it because this movie of all the six that I'm going to talk about really is the one that I have the least complaints about. So yeah, was it a necessary film? I'd say that of the six, it's the least unnecessary. There were 40 years between the original and the remakes. That's a considerable amount of time. So they picked a much older film that was made on a much smaller budget that really wasn't very scary. And they took all of that and they tried to make it scarier. And and so I actually kind of think that none of these movies are necessary, but House on Haunted Hill was the least unnecessary. So I started with House on Haunted Hill, uh, which was not just the earliest film on my list, but it was also kind of my favorite of the remakes that I enjoyed. So now I'm going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum. It is the next film in chronological order, but it is actually my least favorite remake on this list, uh, and that is Halloween from 2007. So I figure I'll talk about that one next. And I did say that I wasn't just going to sit here and trash any movies, and this is going to be a big challenge for me, and I'm actually really excited. I have a, what I would say, at least in my small echo chamber of friends, I have a bit of a reputation for being the last person in the world to talk to about the Rob Zombie Halloween movies, (laughs) because I'm, I'm very, I just... Ugh, I really don't like them. Um, but I did recently go back and rewatch the Dead Meat Kill Count from Rob Zombie's Halloween. First of all, because I love Dead Meat. If you have never watched uh, any of Dead Meat's videos on YouTube, I highly recommend them. Um, James A. Janice is my favorite YouTuber, and he's usually just sort of my my go-to for like regular entertainment. But I will also sometimes rewatch some of his kill counts if I need a bit of a refresher on a film that I haven't seen in a long time. It, it they act well 
well as like little cliff notes of movies. So, and I have not seen Rob Zombie's Halloween in many, many years. So I needed a refresher when I knew I was going to do this entry. So I went back and watched Dead Meat's video, as well as a couple of reviews of the film, um, just to kind of put myself in the mindset of someone who is not just going to be belligerent uh, about a movie that they hate. And there are a couple of things that I can say that are positive about this film. I'm not going to lead with them, but, but I will get to them. Although there are, for me, a handful of reasons why this is one of my least favorite remakes, I think probably the most significant reason is simply because I feel that Rob Zombie, while talented, obviously, he's Rob Zombie. He's great. I've loved White Zombie since I was in junior high school, and I know that he's a talented guy, and more than that, he's a member of the horror fandom, and that is one of the reasons why I will always love him, because he's not just a horror fan, he's a famous horror fan who is spreading the love of horror throughout the world at all times. So I don't have any problems with Rob Zombie personally, but I do believe that he was probably one of the very worst choices to do a Halloween remake. Even more so than House on Haunted Hill, I have no doubt that nearly anyone and everyone who might stumble upon this blog will know the story of Halloween. But for the sake of symmetry, I'm going to talk about the premise of the film anyway. So the, the original Halloween, directed by John Carpenter in 1978, is the story of Laurie Strode, who gets good grades in school and isn't really a huge fan of like doing drugs and having a lot of sex. Um, she does like boys and she does smoke pot, but it's very minimal and it's all sort of uh, done beneath a thin veil of concern for her future and her safety. And, you know, she's a very uncorrupt, sweet, kind young person. And she has a couple of really close friends, Annie and Linda, who are the polar opposite of her in many ways. They're very promiscuous. They do a lot of drugs. They drink. They're really into really into their boyfriends. Don't care much for school, but they're her friends, you know. I forgot my chemistry book. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my, let's see, my French book. And, well, who needs books anyway? I don't need books. And it's the story of Lori and one night of her life, uh, during which time she is babysitting for the Doyles. And all of this takes place in a very picturesque and quiet, unassuming neighborhood in what is supposed to be Illinois. It is not Illinois, but I mean, it, it, it's supposed to be. It's just a nice neighborhood filled with nice people. And on the outskirts of this neighborhood lurks a dark, nameless shadow. And that shadow is Michael Myers. We do see a little bit of Michael's story in the beginning of the original film because we see him murder his sister when he's very, very young. And we know that Michael was institutionalized and his doctor, Dr. Loomis, portrayed by Donald Pleasance in the original, is kind of, he's a little obsessive about Michael. I, I watched him for 15 years, sitting in a room, staring at a wall, not seeing the wall, looking past the wall, looking at this night in humanly patient. Michael escapes and immediately goes back to Haddonfield, where he then proceeds to stalk and kill babysitters. That's what he does. Or anyone who gets in his way. Loomis immediately goes to Haddonfield and tries to find Michael, as well as warn the sheriff and just sort of prepare the town for what he assumes will be a bloodbath, and he's not wrong. 
then Michael proceeds to kill everyone that Lori has ever known or loved. And it definitely seems that it's personal to Lori in the first film. Of course, it wasn't. When they made the film originally, there was no storyline about Michael being related to Lori. And I mean, he wasn't even billed as Michael Myers in the credits. He was billed as The Shape. And I sort of feel that the original story, it was more, a, Michael Myers was more an allegory for corruption of any kind. And Lori was able to overcome him to defeat that demon and take her place in the final girl hall of fame because she was resistant to corruption because she was innocent and that gave her this sort of almost mythical strength it's it's an incredible film obviously it's one of my favorites the halloween franchise it's definitely my favorite horror franchise um and i and the original halloween is what really hammered home for me what planted the seed for a lifelong love of final girls um why i love that trope and so many of the actors and characters that i have come to love over the years stems from a love of that film. So it's a very important movie to me. And I, I feel that it says a lot without saying much. That's also one of the reasons I enjoy the original because there is a lot of subtlety. And I'm sure quite a bit of the subtlety actually was more due to budgetary constraints than anything else. But it works. It works so well for the film. Michael being more of a sort of terrifying silhouette is very scary. There's no boogeyman. And if you don't stop all this, I'm going to have to turn off the TV and send you to bed. Now, Rob Zombie's Halloween, he did try to really make a, a, a big part of the story his own, and he tried to really up the scare factor of the film by modern standards. And I think according to some people, he succeeded on both fronts. In the remake, we actually see a lot more of Michael Myers. A lot more. I don't even think we actually meet Laurie until about 50 minutes into the film. It's almost all about Michael in the beginning. And we see his home life and that it was a very abusive environment. Quite a bit of colorful language in with his family that I really feel is out of place in a Halloween film. Um, not saying that people aren't, you know, don't have trash mouths in Halloween because they absolutely do. But it just felt, oh, it was overkill, in my opinion. And that, honestly, I feel like you could probably apply that word to this film um, and, and it would cover all manner of sins within it. I mean, it, the, the film really did feel like overkill in general. Um, you have characters behaving in ways that I just don't even personally believe characters behave at all. Like, people don't behave that way. Um, he did change the character of Lori. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So we see that. We see Michael's upbringing. Uh, we learn a little bit more about his sister as well, Judith. And we do see that he is exhibiting some of the early warning signs of a serial killer. He's obviously killing and torturing animals. And he just sort of has this kind of sociopathic air about him. Then he kills his sister. He gets carted off to, to the institute. He's assigned to Dr. Loomis, uh, and Loomis proceeds to try to open him up and then can no longer reach him. And then we jump forward in time and we see grown-up Michael. Before I proceed, I would like to say, in case I forget to say it later, that I do really enjoy Tyler Maine as Michael Myers in this film. Um, I agree with a lot of the other reviews that I've seen of the film that Tyler Maine is actually, I think, one of the best things about the movie because he does bring a certain otherworldly, sinister quality to Michael Myers that I have never seen before. There have been great Michaels in the past, but I think Tyler Maine is probably my favorite because he is the most frightening. So that's one, one point in Halloween's favor for sure. So then finally, once Michael escapes from the asylum, we finally get to see 
see Laurie Strode. The problem with that structure for the film, in my opinion, is that there's not really a whole lot of time to invest in the characters of Laurie, Linda, and Annie, because we've already just spent so much time investing in Michael. And on top of that, because we know so much of where Michael came from and what Michael has gone through himself, it makes him as a character, and obviously not as a figure, like an imposing figure, which Tyler Maine very much is, but the thing that is hunting and killing Lori and her friends, it makes it less scary. One of the things that I felt was so frightening about Michael Myers in the original is that he had no motive. I mean, to us, we had no idea why he killed his sister or why he came back to Haddonfield and why he was killing babysitters. What motivated him? We didn't know. He had almost no personality. And that made him terrifying. But to give so much weight and depth and story to Michael, to focus so much of the attention and energy on the killer, it really diminished for me the emotional impact of his kills, particularly in this context. And then also you have you know, what I felt were arbitrary changes to the character of Lori, where she is obviously not nearly as pure of heart and sound of mind as Lori in the original. In fact, a couple of times in the film, she sort of behaves in a way that like, I just feel like no human being would ever behave, no matter how rebellious they were. Guess what, Mom? Mr. Nichols touched me the wrong way. Oh, Lori! Lori! I didn't understand the point in changing Lori the way that he did. And I feel that it also sort of changes the message of the film in general. It, it felt a lot, a lot more soulless. Those are some of the things that I didn't enjoy about the film. I felt that he really Rob Zombied it up in that he made it very trashy because he's very good at that. I personally think Rob Zombie would have been an excellent choice uh, to remake a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film or Last House on the Left or The Hills Have Eyes. Like if Rob Zombie's going to be put on remake duty for anything, put him on one of those movies, please. Because I feel like he could really do a great job with any of those stories. But because of that sort of idyllic setting that is Haddonfield in the original film, that sort of trailer trash aesthetic and the language and just even just the subject matter, like the fact that Michael's mother is a stripper and the sexual abuse that Judith gets from her stepfather or her mother's boyfriend. I actually don't remember their, what their relationship really was. It all just felt very out of place. So anyway, those are my complaints about the film or the bulk of my complaints about them. As far as what the movie did right, I did, like I said, really enjoy, I was afraid I was going to forget to mention this, but clearly I'm remembering now, Tyler Maine. I really enjoyed Tyler Maine. And I also liked the kid version of Michael, although I may not have enjoyed seeing Michael as a child and uh, more than what I saw in the original. With what we were given, I did actually really enjoy the actor who played young Michael. I don't know how to pronounce his name, and I'm not gonna try. The film also featured appearances from some of my favorite actors. You have Brad Dorif, who is just absolutely Desert Island top five favorite humans in general, uh, and definitely one of my favorite actors. So I was really happy to see him play Sheriff Brackett. That was nice. I love Dee Wallace, who plays Laurie Strode's mom. She was great. Malcolm McDowell as Dr. Loomis, although I, I wasn't too keen on exactly the changes that were made to Loomis's character, because he's a little bit more of a douchebag in the zombie version of the film. I don't know if you can hear it, by the way, but there are still fireworks going off all over my neighborhood. Uh, and this will be my life for the next three or four days. All weekend long for the 4th of July, everyone. <laughs> Can you hear that? 
So although I wasn't a huge fan of the changes made to Loomis's character either, I, I did think that Malcolm McDowell was a good choice. You also have Bill Mosley. It was really great to see him. I know that Udo Kier is in the film, but I cannot picture, I haven't, like I said, I haven't seen the movie in a long time. I cannot picture him in this film. I know he's in it, but I just can't picture him. I wasn't crazy about Scout Taylor Compton playing Laurie in the film, but I don't think it was really her fault. I think it was the script. I think it was how Laurie specifically was written. Um, and it was really nice to see Danielle Harris, obviously. So the casting, I thought that the casting was really good. I do have to give Rob Zombie props for trying something completely different with the story. As far as whether or not the film is necessary, I feel like it absolutely was not. I feel like Halloween from 1978 is a movie that does not need to be retold anymore at all, especially because we were given so many sequels to the story originally. And there have also been, they've tried to end the Halloween story a couple of times now in ways that I really like. And as a result of that, we've sort of seen some rehashing already. So I, I feel like we really didn't need a new Halloween. And looking at it from a modernized standpoint, you know, culturally, like were some of the differences, some of the changes that, that Rob Zombie made to the characters, was the film scarier to modern audiences than the original? I don't think so. Primarily because the newer one relies so heavily on gore and brutal violence, which I personally find far less scary than not even really seeing what's happening. Seeing someone being murdered through a fogged up window and only getting kind of a hint of what's happening to her. You know she's being strangled, but you don't actually see the details up close. The original did have some, it had some nudity, it had a couple of graphic kills, it had drugs, it had sex, it had all that stuff, but it was dialed down. And I think Michael, though he was physically more, much more imposing in the new one, I think that overall he was much scarier in the original. And it was because of that subtlety and that, that lack of graphic brutality. So all in all, I would say still not a fan of the film. <laughs> but I do think that if I'm ever forced to watch it again, or any time that I ever discuss it, I do feel a little bit less angry, uh, mostly because this is the first time I've really sat down and talked about what a great cast the film has. So I think that's something that I'll try to keep in mind in the future. It's got a lot of really great people in it. And that alone kind of makes can make it fun to watch, you know, maybe just try to emotionally or mentally separate yourself from the source material. And it might still not be an amazing film, but it might be a little bit more fun. Next up, we have another one of the remakes that I really enjoyed. In fact, this one, I was very surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Uh, a friend of mine recommended it to me and I said, absolutely not, no way, not going to watch it. Um, and they insisted, and I'm glad that they did because I was, I actually really liked it a lot. And that was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003. Now, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, much like Halloween, I think, is just one of the ultimate horror films. It's a classic, and most people know it. I think that was also partly why I wanted nothing to do with it, because I really enjoy the original film. The original film was released in 1974. It stars Marilyn Burns as the final girl, Sally, in the film, and I think she does such a spectacular job. It's got just really great actors in general. You've got Edwin Neal, who plays the hitchhiker. You've Gunnar Hansen, who plays Leatherface. He's my favorite Leatherface. John Dugan, who plays Grandpa. 
Grandpa. Like, this was a great cast of players, and it really laid the foundation for the Sawyers, which, you know, I mean, they're just, they're such a great horror film family. So I have a special place in my heart for this film in particular because of the groundwork that it laid. I also really love the aesthetic of the original Texas Chainsaw. I love where it was shot in Texas. I really like the landscapes of the film, how it feels, the wardrobe. And it was also one of the first horror films that I ever remember watching that really profoundly, like, mentally disturbed me. And I feel like it's probably appropriate to follow up Halloween 2007 with this film because what I didn't like about Halloween 2007 is everything that I do like about both versions of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is the brutal violence. The way that the brutal violence is handled in both the original and the remake, I felt that it was just done really well. I don't know exactly where the distinction is in my mind between the brutality of Halloween and the brutality of Texas Chainsaw, but there is a difference to me. The original story, you have have a couple of siblings who are going driving out through rural Texas to visit their grandfather's grave, and they've taken a few of their friends with them. They inevitably end up on the Sawyer property, and they are then terrorized, brutalized, cannibalized, just all the, all the eyes. There are moments when we cannot believe that what is happening is really true. Pinch yourself and you may find out that it is. It's weird. As a side note, I'm I'm really having so much fun keeping this audio blog, but it's definitely proving to be a challenge for me in a couple of different ways. Mostly in that while I talk about horror films all the time in my regular life, I don't really talk about them in the exact way that I'm talking about them now. Um, and Texas Chainsaw, I guess, uh, because I live in that little echo chamber of horror fans, you know, all my friends are really into horror movies as well. It's like, I just never have to explain Texas Chainsaw to people or try to summarize it. This is new. It's a new experience for me. <laughs> But that's essentially the story. A bunch of kids end up at a house and they, they fight to survive. They do the best that they can. Then it all kind of comes together at the end with Sally getting away and like sort of scream laughing, covered in blood in the bed of a pickup truck as she escapes. Like that's, it's one of my favorite scenes is, is Marilyn Burns escaping. It's like she's like scream, cry laughing hysterically. And I love that because the trauma that anyone would suffer at the hands of the Sawyers is so very, it's like very visceral, and I really like how they conveyed that. The new one was directed by Marcus Nisbell, who also directed the remake of Friday the 13th, uh, which I talked about in last week's entry. I'm actually, that's also a remake I really like. I like the guy so far, this director. And I also think that Jessica Biel was very well cast. I thought that she gave a great final girl performance as well. Um, not quite the same performance as Marilyn Burns, and they're different characters. In the new one, her name is Erin, and you also have a great supporting cast as well in the new one. Um, you have Eric Balfour, who plays Aaron's boyfriend, Kemper. I was really pleased to see him. I thought he did a great job. Erica Learson, who plays Pepper. All of the kids, actually, in the beginning of the film, instead of going to visit Sally's grandfather's grave, they are instead on their way to a Leonard Skinner concert. I thought that the entirety of the cast of, of young, young folks headed through Texas, I thought they were all really believably cast as human beings that lived in the 1970s at that age. I just thought they were really believable 70s characters. Characters, and I, I enjoyed that. Some of the language that they used is not as familiar to me as like some of the other language I associate with the 70s. But for the most part, I thought that they, they really, the film really preserves that 1970s hot Texas summer feeling that I loved so much about the original. It, it also introduces characters like Sheriff Hoyt, played by Arlie Ermey, who 
oh my God, was so good. He was so well cast. Definitely, hands down, my favorite thing about the film was Arlie Ermey. Couldn't have picked a better guy for that character. That's just an educated guess, but my money says your dead body's right there in that band. They also recast John Larroquette as the narrator of the film, which was additionally one of my favorite things about it, because John Larroquette's narration was easily, in my opinion, one of the most memorable things about the original Texas Chainsaw. So, so thrilled that they were able to bring him back. Yet none of the evidence was more compelling than the classified police footage of the crime scene walkthrough. They did make several changes to the story, but I felt that they were good changes that didn't really rip open the fabric of the Texas Chainsaw universe as I knew it. You know, they were just, they were just changes. Things that could just as easily have happened to these characters in the original film. I like the hitchhiker from the original Texas Chainsaw, don't get me wrong. And he was wackadoo and... (laughs) A little unsettling, but instead of going with just full-blown crazy from the beginning, they chose to actually be a little bit subtler with the crazy in the beginning and get crazier and crazier as the story went on. Because in the original film, the kids pick up a hitchhiker, uh, a young man who almost instantly, as soon as he's in the car, starts kind of talking nonsense. He's got like a knife that he's playing with, um, and he's freaking them out in a very kind of spastic way that they kind of almost think is entertaining at first, and then obviously picking up the hitchhiker goes south. Well, in the new one, they kept the framework of that in, but they changed some of the details. Like instead of a spastic young man hitchhiking, they pick up a disoriented young woman who's walking barefoot in the middle of the road, covered in blood. And she's just, I guess she's not actually covered in blood, but she's barely talking. And what she's saying doesn't make any sense. And she pulls a gun out from between her legs and then shoots herself in the van. And they're all really concerned for her up until that point. You know, it's not, they're not uncomfortable and thinking of ways to kick her out of the car. They're just worried about her. And then Aaron insists that they try to find her people. They stop somewhere, try to get a hold of the sheriff, report the incident. And most of the kids want to go. They just want to leave, kind of dump the girl on the side of the road and go back home and forget that this happened. But Erin insists that they stay. She wants to make sure that this girl's body is returned to someone that can, you know, return her to her family. And then while they're waiting for the sheriff, the kids kind of separate and Eric Balfour and Jessica Biel's characters end up at the Sawyer home. It doesn't take long for Eric Balfour to disappear. Throughout the course of Kemper disappearing and Aaron calling the sheriff, the sheriff shows up to the other half of the group of kids and it's Arlie Ermey and he's amazing and he freaks them the ever-living fuck out. You kind of realize slowly, much like you do in the original story and then in the stories that followed that, that there are just so many more people that are kind of in on this than you initially thought. And when you think you can trust something or someone, you can't. And when you think that the terror should probably end, it doesn't. There's a lot of that. A lot of those things that I loved about the original, they preserve that in the new one. And I just think that's, I think that's great. I wasn't as big a fan of the Leatherface in this film. That's not to say anything against uh, Andrew Berniarski, I think is how you pronounce his last name, who played Leatherface. He was a very imposing man. But OG Leatherface was a clumsy, spastic, violent motherfucker who that clumsiness that I felt Gunnar Hansen brought to the role 
was so much more disturbing to me than like the just hulking figure that just walks around and scares people and then chops them up with their chainsaw. It was scarier that he was like a child almost. And it also, I think, checked a little bit more with the nature of the Sawyers in general. I felt that it really checked more that Leatherface was was like a kid. And they they really explore that in sequels, the sequels to the original Texas Chainsaw. Um, so I wasn't as big a fan of the Leatherface in the new one. But for the most part, I thought, much like House on Haunted Hill, that it was just a good representation of the original. It was it paid good tribute to the original while kind of trying to do its own thing. It maintained a lot of the spirit, the atmosphere of what I loved about the first one. I wanted to kind of stick to the whole, what does the film do right? What does it do wrong? Kind of format, but like I just fucked all of that up while talking about this film. <laughs> but yeah, so it did some things right, did some things wrong. Was it a necessary film? No. I would also say no to that. It did a lot of the same things that the original one did. And because they set it in the same time period, they didn't really modernize it much. Obviously, they were able to do more with their budget and with the technology that we had, you know, in 2003. They were able to do more with the violence than they could in 74. But I don't think that's necessary. The original film is really scary and it's it's really disturbing. And so, although I did really enjoy this one, I, I would say that this one was not needed either. So this next one, I'm going to try to talk about this next remake with a straight face. I don't know how well that'll work out for me, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I feel like this is probably one of the more tragic remake stories out there because I think good things could have been done with it, but they weren't. <laughs> so that's My Bloody Valentine 3D from 2009. <sighs> Man. Oh, I just can't. I just can't talk about this movie in any seriousness because it was so ridiculous. I'm trying to remain objective. Objectivity, Molly. Objectivity. You can do it. The original My Bloody Valentine was directed by George Mahalka in 1981. I hope that I'm pronouncing his last name correctly as well. I didn't realize until I started kind of mapping this entry out that some of these actors and directors I've never seen interviewed, so I have no idea how they pronounce their names. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Mahalka. So it's the story of a group of really close friends who live in a small town where celebrating Valentine's Day has always been forbidden because there was a tragedy that happened in the mine. It's a, it's a mining town. <laughs> probably should have specified that. There was a tragedy that happened in the mine years earlier, um, and a lot of people died. There was one lone survivor. He had to, like, eat his co-workers and friends to survive. It kind of becomes, like, a local legend. And this new generation of kids who work at the mine, they are not having any of this whole not being able to celebrate Valentine's Day malarkey. They are in love. They are young. They want to party. So they are determined to have a Valentine's Day dance. Mabel, this is the best thing that's happened in this town in years. Your decorating committee has done one hell of a job. Well, after all, the first Valentine's dance in 20 years has to be something special. But of course, someone in the town does not approve of this revitalization of Valentine's Day, and they are lashing out by killing a whole bunch of people, in some cases in some very Valentine's Day-ish ways. 
You have a couple of main characters in this story, one being TJ, played by uh, a man named Paul Kelman, who I've never seen in anything else, but I really enjoy him in My Bloody Valentine. I thought he was just, he was a very likable character. And then you also have Laurie Hollier, who plays Sarah, who is sort of the final girl of the film, um, and then Axel, played by Neil Affleck. They have a sort of love triangle happening. TJ used to go with Sarah, and then TJ just up and left town one day, disappeared for a really long time, didn't tell anybody where he was going or if he was ever coming back. And while he was gone, Sarah got involved with Axel, who had been TJ's best friend. TJ returns to town, kind of like half expecting to get back together with Sarah, but she's with Axel now. One of the things that I personally like the most about My Bloody Valentine is that it does very much play on your expectations of who the killer is. We, I think, as an audience, most of us either assume that it is Harry Warden, who was the original lone survivor of the cave-in, or we believe that it's TJ, comes back from out of town, nobody really knows where he's been. Then throughout the course of the story, you kind of start to suspect that maybe it's Axel, and you're just not really sure who the killer is. And they really played that up. That was a big part of the original film. And in the end, it is revealed that Axel is actually the killer. Um, And it turned out that he was related to someone who was killed in the mine, and he is exacting his revenge. In the remake of the film, which was directed by a guy named Patrick Lussier, Lussier? In the remake, you actually have a couple of jumps in time. You have the tragedy at the mine, and then Tom being with Sarah. We actually kind of get to see them being together. And then Tom disappears, and then he comes back. And for the most part, the story is really similar, except in this version, Tom is part owner of the mine, and he wants to sell it. There, I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of Valentine's Day stuff happening, but they made some changes. So I want to actually just jump right into that, because what the film does right, in my opinion, um, they They changed who the killer was completely. They just 100% changed the killer. And I loved that about it. I thought that was really cool because the original film plays so heavily on your expectations of who the killer is. I just thought it was a super bold move for them to just make the killer a different person entirely. So instead of Axel, who is the killer in the original, Tom or the TJ character is the killer in the new one. I have to commend the film for that. However, (laughs) almost everything else about the movie, I feel is awful. I feel like they got so much wrong. They filmed it for 3D, so there's a lot of like 3D effects going on. Uh, I didn't, I've never seen it in 3D, so I can't really speak to the quality of those effects. I know that not watching it in 3D makes it look a little ridiculous, and a couple of the kills rely so heavily on CGI, I couldn't get into it at all. There's gotta be something else that I liked about it. There has to be. That's the point of this exercise, is to try to find good things from the bad. I am thinking of nothing. I really wanted so badly to like this movie, especially because Jensen Ackles was the main character. And I, I, if you have an actor like Jensen Ackles, you can do so much with him. I'm not going to say that he's like the most versatile actor working today, but he's very talented. I've watched him in Supernatural for years, and I think he has a lot of layers to him, and he can do quite a lot. And I feel like they just wrote the most boring version of this Tom Hanager character that they ever could have written. So they had Jensen Ackles and then barely used him. And he's not likable at all. So when you have TJ from the original, who's such a charming little smiley character that you instantly like, it was such a stark contrast. Axel from the film... I think was just equally unlikable. Just a lot of unlikable people. Axel's cheating on Sarah. I don't really understand the point of that. 
I think it's important to bear in mind that this horror film was made post-90s sitcoms. I find myself actually saying and thinking that a lot when I watch more contemporary slasher films, because it's always a group of people who just don't seem to get along at all. They don't seem to have anything in common, and yet they're out at a cabin in the woods together, or they have parties, and they all, they invite all of each other to these parties. Why are you people friends? You don't seem to like each other at all. And there is a little bit of that in My Bloody Valentine 3D. And I, I hate that, especially because of the film that this is remaking. Because of the camaraderie that you feel with the group of friends in the original, that's one of the most charming things about that film, is how well these characters get along. You really feel like they've known each other their whole lives. Sure, it's not his fault. It's nobody's fault. I don't know what to do. You know, I really do like that son of a bitch. <laughs> hey, remember? Remember how we used to tear this place apart? They get drunk, race out to the bus. That was great. Even when they're really mad at each other and they're about to start fighting, they still have time to like play a nice little ditty on the harmonica together. They use a lot of practical effects in the original film. Obviously, it was 1981. That kind of gives it that same sense of realism that any horror film using practical effects typically does. I mean, unless it's, you know, something that deals with goblins or creatures from another world, I think a lot of the time the practical effects can sometimes go very wrong. But I'm just, I'm always going to be, I think, more a fan of practical versus, you know, CGI. Particularly with My Bloody Valentine, the 2009 version relied so heavily on CGI. They just, they went overboard with it. There was no subtlety at all. I, it just really reminded me of how much I enjoyed the first one. I think that's what the remake did more than anything. So in a way, I guess that's a point in its favor. It reminded me of how great the original was. <laughs> Also, the ending of the remake, like I said, I love the fact that they changed the identity of the killer. Huge props to them for that. But I, I didn't like that it, it turned out that it was actually Tom being possessed by the spirit of Harry Warden, which is kind of what I think they were trying to imply. I thought that maybe he was just hallucinating and had gone crazy and had like a split personality thing that way. But then you're just sort of left to wonder, like, is he possessed? And then also, with all due respect to Jamie King, I felt that her portrayal of Sarah was just really forgettable compared to the portrayal of Sarah in the original film. So all in all, not a great remake. But I did really enjoy that they tried to do something completely different with the story. I, I admire that. If these movies are going to keep being remade, I really hope people try to do what My Bloody Valentine 3D tried to do. I hope they do it better. I definitely recommend watching the original My Bloody Valentine if you have not yet, because it is just a very fun, very spirited slasher film. And you, it's kind of nice to get to see a group of kids really getting along while they're getting murdered. <laughs> Next up on the list, we have what, for me, was a pretty unique remake in that I knew I was going to like it before it came out, and I saw it on opening weekend. I don't normally do that with these types of films, but this one, I had a feeling, and, and my feeling was correct. I really enjoyed it, uh, and that is Fright Night, directed by Craig Gillespie from 2011. Prior to my recording this entry, which has taken me a couple of days, <laughs> um, I hadn't seen the original Fright Night in a very long time. And I wanted to make sure that I was remembering it all correctly, so I just went back and watched this movie 
And it is wonderful. <laughs> I was actually remembering it all wrong. I didn't have the fondest memories of the original Fright Night for whatever reason. I think maybe because when I initially saw the film, I was pretty young, and I don't think I understood a lot of the referential comedy, the satire in the film. I wasn't savvy to a lot of what the film was saying. Watching it again, man, it is hilarious, and it is such a well-made movie. So the original was directed by Tom Holland, who I feel is a bit of a renaissance man. He's an actor, a writer, a director, probably best known as the director of the original Child's Play. Fright Night tells the story of young Charlie, played by William Ragsdale, who is an avid fan of a television series called Fright Night, hosted by a man named Peter Vincent, who in this film is played by Roddy McDowell. And almost as soon as we meet Charlie, we also learn that there's something not quite right with his neighbor, Jerry. Now, Jerry is played by Chris Sarandon. This is hands down my absolute favorite Chris Sarandon performance ever. He is on fire in this film. He was perfect. He was absolutely perfect for this character. Jerry is an arrogant, snarky monster hiding within the guise of this like 80s suave seductor. I can't imagine anybody else uh, doing quite as good a job as Chris Sarandon did. He was just perfect. Have I said that enough? He was perfect. And Charlie begins to suspect that Jerry is a vampire also very early on in the film. And all of the people around him, his girlfriend, played by Amanda Beers, his friend Ed, who is played by Stephen Jeffries, who I'm a very big fan of as well. I first saw him, uh, or at least I remember first seeing him in 976 Evil. Um, I think everybody around Charlie, because of his obsession with Fright Night, and also because, you know, vampires don't exist, it, it, nobody believes him when he starts to talk about the fact that he thinks Jerry is a vampire, even though the evidence is just getting more and more overwhelming as the story goes on. It doesn't help that his approach to trying to convince everyone around him comes across as utterly spastic. And that's the other thing about Charlie. In the original Fright Night, I think that Charlie is absolutely mind-numbingly annoying. He calls a policeman over and actually walks into Jerry's house with a cop and accuses Jerry of being a vampire to his face. And so, of course, then Jerry, who is in fact a vampire, is now 100% aware of the fact that Charlie suspects him and behaves accordingly with the help of his, what I believe is probably his uh, familiar or what is the word that we use for vampire slave? Oh god, there's a word for it. Hold on. Fledgling. Fledgling. I went to look it up. And I remembered before I actually typed it into Google. I believe that that's what the man who lives with Jerry, it's Jerry's roommate. I believe that he's his fledgling. So then a frustrated Charlie returns home and it doesn't take long for Jerry to show up in his living room. And he's being the ultimate smarm and introducing himself to Charlie as if they've just met and making thinly veiled threats, which then lead to direct threats after uh, Charlie's mom has gone to sleep. Jerry attacks Charlie in his bedroom, but he tells him, I'm going to give you a something that I never had, which was a choice. You you can forget about me. I'm giving you the option to just drop this and, and go away. Which I thought was interesting because it added just that one little line of dialogue adds this layer of melancholy to Chris Sarandon's Jerry that I really enjoy. It kind of makes him almost a little sad. It establishes that he did not choose to become a vampire, and although he owns it, he may not be 100% happy about it. I thought that was a really cool line of dialogue. So anyway, Charlie, in his distress, tracks down Peter Vincent. The character of Peter Vincent in this version is 
is, I believe, a bit of a throwback to a lot of classic monster movie actors. And during his introduction, he reminds the audience of the direction in which horror films in 1985 were inevitably going. I have just been fired because nobody wants to see vampire killers anymore, or vampires either. Apparently all they want are demented madmen running around in ski masks, hacking up young virgins. Because Charlie is just sort of going off the rails, he is spazzing out, putting himself in danger, and he's also making everyone else uncomfortable in the process. Ed and Amy go to Peter Vincent and ask him if he will fake some sort of a vampire test to convince Charlie that Jerry is human. So they all get together and go to Jerry's house, and Peter Vincent, who uh, has actually contacted Jerry beforehand, has explained to him what's going to happen, gives him a, a small vial of fake holy water and asks him to drink it in front of Charlie, and so... He does. They make a big show of it. Everyone is like, come on, Charlie, are you convinced now? Charlie, of course, is not. And from that point, Jerry's like personal vendetta against Charlie gets ramped up. A couple of the things that I love most about the original Fright Night are, firstly, it has a spectacular score. It's just some of the best music that I've ever heard in a horror film. Also, I really like that they gave Jerry the monster treatment, which is appropriate for this film as it is a kind of commentary on the death of monster movies. They definitely went more creature-esque. That handsome facade, it degrades over time throughout the film as he is being cornered. The harder Jerry fights, the more like a monster he becomes. One of the artists that worked on this film, Bill Sturgeon, also did special effects makeup for Videodrome, which is definitely definitely among my favorite films. He also worked on An American Werewolf in London, The Frighteners, Hellboy. He's just done a lot of makeup on a lot of great films. The character of Ed in particular, his transformation into a vampire and also his death were very memorable effects for me. Now the remake of Fright Night, it just kind of takes that original story and makes it a little edgier. It is still a comedy. It is still a story of the vampire next door. A lot of the main events from the original film still take place in the new one. And what changes the film makes to the original story, I feel like all of them were very well thought out. First of all, the remake is set in Las Vegas, which when you think about it is actually a pretty smart place for a vampire to hide. They've also dialed down Charlie's annoying factor. Uh, Charlie in the remake is played by Anton Yelchin, and I think that he is so charming and likable. In the original film, when we're first introduced to Charlie, he's yelling at his girlfriend because she's scared to have sex with him. And then his girlfriend immediately decides, okay, let's do it. You know, I'm sorry, you're right. Thank you for yelling at me. It's cool. And then, of course, when she says she's ready, Charlie becomes immediately distracted by the next door neighbor, which is the joke. But it, through the lens of 2019, that scene is a little, it's a little cringy. They've also taken the character of Ed and given him a slightly larger role in the earlier part of the film. Ed is actually the one who is the fan of Peter Vincent. And Charlie has gotten this beautiful girlfriend, Amy, who is also really popular and become popular in the process. He and Ed are just not that close anymore. We don't see it happen, but Ed is actually the one who finds out that Jerry is a vampire, who figures it out. That's fiction, okay? This is real. He's a real monster and he's not brooding or lovesick or noble he's the fucking shark from jaws he kills he feeds and he doesn't stop until everybody around him is dead and i seriously am so angry you think i read twilight 
and he kind of blackmails Charlie with some embarrassing information from their youth into helping him search the home of their other former friend, Adam, who has gone missing. It's during that scene that Ed tells Charlie that Jerry is a vampire, um, but Charlie, of course, doesn't believe him. Almost immediately after that, Ed is killed and turned into a vampire. Jerry has taken a particular interest in Charlie and Charlie's family, particularly his mother and his girlfriend. His mother, played by Tony Collette, who, in my opinion, has never given a bad performance. She's great in this movie. I think she brings a real likability to Charlie's mother. The writing is on point for the most part. I think it is very funny. And I think in terms of what this film does especially right, there are two answers to that question. Colin Farrell as Jerry the Vampire and David Tennant as Peter Vincent. These were two fantastic casting choices. Both of these actors, particularly Colin Farrell, they really just go the distance with these roles. I was always relatively indifferent to Colin Farrell as an actor. He really never did anything that just completely wowed me, but I I didn't dislike him either. He was just, for me, kind of a meh actor. When I saw him in this movie, I think that really helped because, man, he's so good. He is so funny. He's also very scary. At times, he's disturbing. Colin Farrell and Chris Sarandon give two very different performances, but neither one is better than the other. And that's not something that I can normally say. And it's great, too, because Chris Sarandon actually has a cameo in the film during one of my favorite sequences where he is killed by Colin Farrell. So we have old Jerry being killed by new Jerry, which is really, really great. David Tennant's Peter Vincent is probably the biggest change that the writers made. Peter Vincent is still kind of a washed up performer, but in a very different way. He does a live show called Fright Night in Vegas. He's David Tennant, so he's a very snarky, very vulgar, exhausted, aged rocker kind of feeling guy. When we first meet him, it's actually really great because he's in like the full Peter Vincent stage getup. Once Ed has disappeared and Charlie is now convinced that Jerry is a vampire, he goes to Peter Vincent to convince him or to, at the very least, get advice. So he fakes his way into it pretending to be a member of the press. And as he's talking to Peter, Peter just slowly starts taking his entire everything off. He takes his wig off. He strips the mustache and the fake beard from his face. He washes the tattoos off of his neck, peeling away that character that he plays bit by bit as he's as he's having the conversation. And I, I really enjoy that scene. I thought that was a very cool introduction to his character, that nothing about him is real. So Charlie doesn't really come right out and tell his family that Jerry is a vampire. He's definitely so much smarter and less annoying than Charlie Brewster in the original. He does become obsessed with Jerry. And one of my favorite scenes in the film is one where Charlie um, sneaks into Jerry's apartment and tries to rescue a girl that Jerry has captive in this kind of, it's sort of like a miniature cell block that he has behind his closet. Charlie rescues this girl that he has locked up in there. She's scared and shaking and she's got bite wounds on her neck. The two sneak out of the house. They're holding hands and just as they get to the edge of the porch and step out onto the lawn where it is daylight out, she bursts into this sort of bloody flame. It was a very, for me, an unexpected moment. I guess I was so immersed in the film that I wasn't thinking about the fact that maybe he had already started to turn her. Maybe she was bait for Charlie. She didn't seem to know what was going to happen to her, so it came as a real surprise to me. And I loved the effect as well. I didn't see this film in 3D, so I can't speak to any of the 3D effects uh, that were created for the film. I do know that a sequence in the film that I really love, I imagine was probably pretty cool in 3D 
Treaty. Uh, Charlie's mother and his girlfriend still don't really believe Charlie about Jerry, but Jerry has got them cornered in the house and he's trying to kind of smoke them out. And he actually sets their house on fire. Obviously, Charlie's mother knows that something is wrong with Jerry. The three of them pile into her car and head down this vacant stretch of road leading to the Las Vegas Strip. There are some effects that happen during that whole thing that I think were probably pretty cool in 3D. They also kept the monster treatment. There are moments throughout the film where Jerry's behavior is very animalistic, but only for like a second. It's like the animal just kind of comes out. It actually reminds me a little bit of the way that Peter Skarsgård played Pennywise in the new It. The monster just peeks out. What were you thinking, Charlie? That you were just going to walk in here with your little crossbow and put to bed 400 years of survival. I also enjoy the color treatment of the film. The whole movie has this sort of gradient, lots of reds and blacks and, and a little bit of like green gradient going on. The film itself almost looks and feels like a vampire. I don't think I've ever said that about a movie before. So I, I definitely feel like that deserves points. As far as things that the film gets wrong, I, I was a little disappointed in the lack of, of sort of social commentary. I feel like they probably could have done a little bit more in the way of commentary about out 21st century horror films. Um, but I don't necessarily think they were obligated to do that. I'll also add that the score to the remake is not nearly as memorable as the score to the original. There are a couple of moments where the dialogue feels like very decidedly 2011. And as far as whether or not the film was necessary, no. But much like House on Haunted Hill, I do think that it was less unnecessary than others. And lastly, we have Poltergeist 2015. There are a lot of things I'd like to say about this film. I really wanted to like it. I didn't have high hopes from the trailers that I had seen, but I really enjoy Sam Rockwell, and I really love the story of Poltergeist. So although normally my initial reaction is to roll my eyes and feel really angry and say we already have Poltergeist, we don't need another one, there were enough things present in this film that made me really want it to be an exception to my rule. Sadly, it was not. Um, I was very disappointed in the film. But I have been thinking a lot more about it lately. Of all the movies on this list, particularly the remakes that I don't like, this is the one that I would like to kind of reconcile with uh, more than any of the others, especially because this film got so much shit. A lot of people hated this movie, and with good reason. Um, but I wanted to kind of try to find something appealing about it. And, and there's just, there's just not much. The original Poltergeist uh, was directed by Tobe Hooper in 1982, written by Steven Spielberg. It's easily one of the best haunted house films ever made. It has an excellent cast. Craig T. Nelson plays Steve, who is the father. Joe Beth Williams plays Diane, the mother. And then what for me was the most memorable performance in the film, Zelda Rubenstein. Everybody gave a great performance and the script was also really great. You have a story of a family who is living in a house that is haunted, essentially, and they become increasingly more and more terrorized. They then bring in experts to exercise the house and a couple of different attempts are made. This house is clean. We, I think we all know. It's a great movie and one of the things that makes the movie great is I think how relatable the members of this family are. They're very well written and there's a lot of natural acting, at least from the, the two adults, from Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams. There's a lot of natural acting. The film also has some of the most impressive special effects that I remember seeing throughout almost the whole of the 80s. I mean, it's just a smorgasbord of really impressive special effects. It's cool too because when the poltergeist first starts 
acting out. They begin to realize that something is off about the house. They're kind of excited about it. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when um, Craig T. Nelson comes home and finds his wife and daughter playing with a weird spot on the kitchen floor where um, Joe Beth will pull Carol Ann into the spot and hold her there. And then when she lets her go, Carol Ann is kind of propelled forward a few feet across the kitchen floor. It's like a ride to them. And they think it's funny. And that's cool. I like that. It felt weirdly realistic. It didn't really have that sort of ominous feeling to it where it's like you instantly feel terrified. You instantly think that your house is haunted and you're all going to die. No, it's this really weird spot where if I put my daughter on it, she just goes flying through the... It's fun. It's like a little slip inside without the water or the plastic or anything at all resembling a slip inside. And then obviously Zelda Rubinstein, um, who plays sort of like the expert to end all experts on ghostly matters. She was just incredible. As a child seeing this movie, I think it was among like the first horror films that I ever watched. I was probably like four or five years old when I saw it for the first time. And I was just transfixed by Zelda. She was hypnotizing. And there was something about her character that you trusted. You didn't question whether or not she knew what she was talking about. She was in your home and she was going to save your life. There is no death. It is only a transition to a different sphere of consciousness. And I had also never seen or heard an actress like her before at that age. I still really haven't. She was a very unique woman. And so overall, it's a very good film. It definitely has what, for me, at least as a kid, were very, very scary moments. Things get crazy in the third act in a very exciting way. There's also the infamous stories about actual hauntings and, and weird happenings on the sets of the Poltergeist films. And then, of course, the deaths of some of the actors that were involved in the projects. I don't believe that the sets were haunted because I don't actually believe in ghosts, but it definitely adds an additional level of fascination for, I think, a lot of people. Now, the remake, which was directed by uh, Gil Keenan, I want to say is how you pronounce their name, uh, and was released in 2015. I'm not familiar with this director. I looked him up, and I've only actually seen two things that he's directed. One, obviously, is Poltergeist, and then the other was one episode of the Scream TV series, which I, I do like the Scream TV series. That being said, the story is almost exactly the same in the new Poltergeist, which really, I think, is actually one of the film's biggest shortcomings. You know, in terms of what this film does wrong, so many people know Poltergeist. So many people love that story. I think that you really had a good opportunity with what has become kind of a classic tale of haunting to really push the envelope and do something different with that story. I think that there was just, there were so many different things that could have been done that they just didn't do. It felt a little like they were playing it on the safe side. I didn't care for that. I'm not a fan of like shot for shot remakes or any remake where they're just basically retelling you the exact exact same story in the exact same way. I'm not very familiar with the guy who wrote the screenplay for the remake, uh, David Lindsay Abair. So I can't, I can't really speak to him as a writer, but I felt like the writing was a big part of the problem here. And then also the excessive use of CGI, just an excessive amount. And then just some arbitrary changes as well. That uh, The Carol Ann-esque character in the remake, uh, whose name in this film is, is actually Madison, played by Kennedy Clemens, she is a and I feel like she does a decent job as far as acting goes, but whoever directed her to deliver that iconic poltergeist line of they're here in the way that she does it, I actually tried to create a soundbite of her saying it so that I could play it here, and um, it is so brief and quiet and sedated 
and muddled by background noise that I couldn't even get a good soundbite of it. It was so sad. You, it's, uh, there here is, it's the line. There here. It's the line from Poltergeist. I mean, that and this house is clean. And I just, I was so disappointed. It's like, they kept weird things the same and changed things that they shouldn't have changed, in my opinion. They just made very weird decisions that I personally felt a fan of Poltergeist probably wouldn't have made. Another decision that they made, the character played by Zelda Rubinstein in the original film is now played by Jared Harris, and his name is Kerrigan Burke. And he's like a reality paranormal investigator TV star. I think when Zelda does... The, the straightening up and fixing herself for the camera when she says when she delivers the line this house is clean in the original film during the false ending they went just like way too far with referencing that line the older daughter Kendra is watching his show on her laptop and the show has hashtag this house is clean you know in the bottom right hand corner characters are saying it left and right after like the third or fourth time it got on my nerves I do understand the commentary there though so I mean I, I'm not entirely upset about it. The more I think about it, the more that's actually probably one of the more sensible changes that they made in the film. Because if you're modernizing it for today's audience, YouTube stars, that's that's relevant. And I think that in this day and age, a character like Kerrigan Burke probably would be doing everything he does on YouTube. So I guess it makes sense. This is the point of this exercise, right? What the film gets right, Sam Rockwell. <laughs> 110% the film the film got right Sam Rockwell. He is my favorite thing about the film. Unfortunately, I don't think he makes the film rewatchable, but he definitely got me through my first viewing of it. I really like Craig T. Nelson, and I like his portrayal of the character of Steve in the original film, but I kind of wish that I could just extract Sam Rockwell from the new one and just pop him into place in place of Craig T. Nelson. And then the original Poltergeist would have been perfect, in my opinion. He's just funny, relatable, natural. He seems very human, and he brings life to a script that I felt was otherwise pretty soulless. They maintained the spirit of the relationship between the husband and wife in the film. Uh, they're named Eric and Amy in the new one. Eric and Amy have a playful relationship that has that sort of the weight of a relationship between people who have been together for a very long time. I find that some writers have a really hard time conveying that. And this script while I feel it fell short in a lot of ways, did a really good job of writing natural dialogue for this particular couple. Some kids are just nervous, you know? My brother was the same way. Yeah, now he lives alone in a trailer park. He doesn't live alone. Yes, he does. Yeah, he's got like 20 cockatoos. You are not making me feel better. I will say, however, that apart from a few bits that I felt were well-written, a couple of scenes that I enjoyed, and the fact that Sam Rockwell is in it, of all the films I've talked about today, Poltergeist 2015 was probably the least necessary. Because they didn't really take any risks with it, because it was just really not very well made. I don't really feel like it was made with a whole lot of love for the original. I can only conclude, after having watched this film twice now, that it was really more about, about turning a profit on the original content. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do. You gotta put food on your table, I get that, but it's not for me. All right, so those were my six films. I don't know that I really learned much of anything. <laughs> 
I don't know that my relationship with remakes really feels like it has been altered in any way. I, I think I said this earlier, but this is really the first time that I've said some of the positive things that I've said about the remakes that I didn't like, though, and kind of tried to think about those things that I enjoy about the films. And doing all the research that I did for this entry, as well as actually recording the entry over a period of days, having some conversations with my friends about it, I have gained some new perspective regarding some of the remakes that I thought I just flat out hated, and I am feeling ever more hopeful about this Candyman spiritual sequel. I'm definitely less angry about it than I was, um, and I am actually now looking forward to giving Child's Play a chance, so I think... I didn't really experience any big revelations throughout the course of this exercise, but everything leading up to recording it and actually being able to really talk some of this stuff out, it has helped. Definitely. Doing everything I can to live a less irritated life as a fan of horror films that just won't stop being remade. I also thought it'd be kind of fun to think about if I were going to choose a horror movie to be remade what would I choose? It's hard for me to say because as soon as a, a movie pops into my head that I would like to see maybe modernized with different actors, in this hypothetical scenario, I would also be in charge of casting for the film. But every time I think of a film, you know, like I would like to, I think I would like to see a remake um, or a modernization of George Cooker's Gaslight, maybe starring Vera Farmiga. That would be pretty cool. But at the same time, I'm like, no, Ingrid Bergman was perfect. It was the perfect film. It's a great film. I don't know. I'll have to think about this some more. Um, if anyone's listening to this, to you, I pose the question, if you uh, were forced to choose a horror movie to be remade, what would you choose? And if you were in control of casting, who would be in the film? Whatever film I would have remade, it would definitely have Vera Farmiga in it. I'm really, really into her right now. <laughs> I guess if I had to summarize the results of this exercise, I would say that my relationship with horror movie remakes and reboots will always be just a little bit complicated. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, creep it real.